We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Kilkenny today. It's great to have you with us here on Community Radio, Kilkenny City 88.7 FM and of course CRKC.ie on the internet. Uh, Morris O'Connor with you here until the top of the hour and good morning if you're listening on the repeat good afternoon if you're listening to us live here on the Tuesday afternoon. Great to have you with us one way or the other. Now later on in the show uh, one of the great uh, annual fundraising events of the year, certainly from the Irish Cancer Society's point of view, Daffodil Day 2021 will be coming up um, very soon and I will be hearing from Rosemary Timmons, their national fundraising leader with the Irish Cancer Society about that uh, just before the end of the show. Um, before Rosemary, we'll, of course, ad breaks, of course, we have to toss in to pay the bills, but before um, Rosemary Timmons, we'll also be hearing from Tony Lauhoff, the senior engineer with Kilkenny County Council, and he'll be telling us about uh, the grant of planning from on board Planola to the uh, proposed development by the Council of the Urban Park and Street in the Abbey Quarter. Uh, so that's a big, exciting development, big milestone in the, the uh, development, ongoing development of the Abbey Quarter. So Tony Lauhoff will be joining us to talk about that and give us an update on what's happening with all of that towards the middle of the show. Uh, but before we do all of that, um, if you're either if you're either yourself a member of Kilkenny City Harriers or you like a bit of long distance running or somebody in the family is, you might be interested in this first item because I'm very pleased to be joined on the line now by Professor Brendan Egan, who's an Associate Professor in Sports and Exercise Physiology in the School of Health and Human Performance in DCU. So good afternoon, Brendan. Welcome to the Good afternoon, room. Mark. Yeah, nice uh, to speak you. Great, great to have you with us, Brendan. I might get into your GAA heritage and background in a little while <laughs> if it's relevant to the conversation. Okay. Um, but there's, there's not that much of that going on anyway. We have other shows yeah. to deal with GAA much better than I do. Um, you, you've been doing some research into um, the benefits for uh, long distance runners anyway of intermittent fasting um, and you have a big interest I think you've had for years between nutrition and exercise and optimizing performance in athletes but also uh, in the elderly so just tell us tell us about the research first of all yeah well intermittent fasting is one of those uh, dietary concepts that's come along in the last number of years that's generated a lot of interest um, primarily because it's fairly easy to do for a lot of people and uh Secondly, I suppose, because there's been a lot of promising research come out of uh, animal studies and is the kind of the way of the world when there's, uh, you know, interesting things in these animal studies, the next challenge becomes to see whether they can translate into humans. And so, you know, as you say, my group has been interested in a variety of different ways of, of improving performance and some of that relates to, you know, the mix of carbohydrate, protein and fat that we eat and others, other work relates to uh, dietary supplements. Um, but this particular project was related to intermittent fasting, which, again, if you're if you're not familiar, or your listeners aren't familiar, is it's an uh, approach where you um, change the eating window of individuals over the course of the day. You do that over over several weeks and uh, and and months. And so, to put that in context, you know most people will eat from morning time when they have their breakfast, let's say that's 8 a.m., and maybe their last snack before bedtime can be 9 or 10 o'clock. And so, mm. it's, you know, that turns out to be 14, 15, 16-hour uh, eating window for a lot of people. 
And uh, intermittent fasting, in the case that, that we use, is simply you narrow that eating window. So you don't necessarily tell people to eat less food. You just tell them to eat it within a, a narrow window. And in our study, we looked at narrowing that window to eight hours. So by default, most people, um, they ate between the hours of 10 and 6 or 12 and 8, you know, something around that. Um, mm. And we looked at the outcomes then on, on uh, running performance and, and body weight. Yeah, and uh, like the, these sort of things, uh, I think it's called time-restricted eating is the yeah. generic term for it. And there's a, there's this, um, I think, 16 hours fasting and eight yeah. hours eating window that you were, you were, you were looking at. Um, it, it, what what exactly does does that because switching over to that kind of regime mm. do to the body, Brendan? And how long does it typically take to adapt? You know, our eating habits are very deeply ingrained in us, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I would say that. Um, you know, a lot of the promising research, as I said, came from uh, from animal models initially. And one of the, I suppose, one of the um, caveats to put to that is that uh, um, rats and mice, in particular, their metabolism is much faster than humans. So when you put them into a, a regimen like this of, of 16 hours of fasting and eight hours of eating, their um, the changes that occur in their body are very rapid, and it really changes the fuel mix. Let's call it. Um, that those animals will use either at rest or, or an exercise. And so, you know, we were we were pretty skeptical, I have to say, that that would happen uh, in humans, just by virtue of the fact that, uh, you know, human physiology is slower and it, it takes longer to adapt to, the, to uh, a restriction in food intake. And so, you know, to cut the, the chase with the, in terms of the outcome of our study, although it's been shown in, in, um, in animals that this type of feeding can improve performance, in our particular study, we didn't see any direct impact on the markers of performance that we would use within the lab. Um, but in the case of over the eight-week period that the uh, men were following this dietary regimen, they uh, lost about a, a kilo, a little over a kilo in, in, in body weight. Which again sounds small, but um, for mm-hmm. athletes that, that could be a benefit to performance. You know, they've less weight to carry around. Uh, you know, in, in, a, in a race, um, and equally, you have to remember these are already lean individuals because they were trained runners. So, yeah. um, bringing about a change like that, um, and you would have to say relatively easily. We did, like I said, we didn't tell them to um, to count calories, or we didn't tell them to restrict certain food types. We simply said. Eat, eat what you like, but only do it for eight hours a day. And, you know, that, that's the concept. So is, this a, is the, the eight hours typically a kind of a nine to five or an eight to four type? Exactly, yeah. Now, okay. of course, uh, the thing is, in practical terms, um, if we maybe branch outside of the, the sporting realm, um, the where time-restricted eating has been interesting to, um, to say, health in particular is around the idea that people tend to spontaneously eat less food if you tell them they can only eat for eight hours. So, like you said, the, the example there is often people say, well, I'll just skip breakfast and I'll start my day at noon and I'll, I'll have my dinner at 8 o'clock and that's my 8-hour window. But the other uh, side of things could be that you start, you have your breakfast at, at 8 o'clock and, you, you know, your, your last meal is, is a kind of an early dinner. And if people do that, you can imagine what happens. They begin to mm-hmm. um, eat, eat less uh, snacking in the evening, say, watching TV. They maybe don't then have alcohol because alcohol, of course, contains calories, so that would be out on this type of regime. And so very quickly, health habits can tend to improve if, if you put these kind of crabs, these narrow window parameters from, a, from an eating point of view. So, look, it, you know, it works for some people, it doesn't work for others, and uh, as is true with a lot of things in, in nutrition, it's kind of what works best for the individual, it tends to be the thing that they stick to. Yeah, we'll get back to, I suppose, to, to the general population and how applicable this might be in, in a couple of minutes, um, Brendan. Just yeah. back to the, your, your athletes then, as you said, they were lean and mean individuals already. Yeah. Um, how, long, how long did they kind of switch over to, or did you have them switching over to this kind of 16-8 um, time-restricted eating for? 
Yeah, so, yeah, they, they did it for eight weeks. So we had one group of, uh, of individuals who just followed their normal diet and training, and then we had the, you know, the intervention group, as we call it, who followed the 16-8 uh, regimen for, for eight weeks. And so um, already after four weeks, we could see that um, there was a change in the amount of energy they were eating per day. Um, and that was... The interesting thing was that was kind of going back to the pre uh, intervention levels by, by eight weeks. So one of the things that we kind of want to look at in, in future studies is whether people can stick to this for a long period of time. So, you know, we only asked these guys to do it for eight weeks and already by the end of the eight weeks they were tending to go back to their old habits. And, you know, again, that's one of the biggest challenges in, in any health uh, intervention, whether it's exercise or, or diet, is to have people to adhere to these things for long periods of time. So yeah, I suppose um, performance to performance for people like that is very basic measurement. I presume it's just their uh, best times that they can do whatever yeah. their their preferred distance is. Yeah, for sure. And um, in the in the lab, um, you know, we. we so we don't control races, and so from a from a uh, experimental point of view, what we do is we bring them into the lab and we look at things that are called lactate threshold and running economy, and these are just lab-based measures of, of that can predict performance. And so, uh, even though these individuals lost a little bit of body weight, uh, there was no evidence that that was improved. Um, in sorry, those other measures were improved in, in terms of the lab test. So, what we would say is that there doesn't seem to be any uh, direct performance benefit. Um, of this particular um, uh, eating regimen, but again, if someone wanted to lose a small bit of weight uh, in the middle of a season or in pre-season, this might be a regimen that they could look at. And so, you know, with a lot of these things, in nutrition, we say it's, it's another tool in the toolbox for practitioners to use if they're if they're working with individual athletes. Yeah, and is is this something that you reckon is is kind of best applied, um, even though it makes a marginal enough difference, so that they're all small margins are very important for elite athletes anyway. Um, can you make any inferences or extrapolate out to other athletes, um, or, or indeed the the wider population of the rest of us that are not at all uh, on the elite spectrum of athletics, are far from it? Yeah, well, I think from from the point of view of um, how this would work, say, as a as a nutritionist, work with teams, and obviously I, I practice uh, in that domain as well. And so um, the use where I would see something like this is is in a pre-season block, let's say, you know, four to eight week period where um, you know a lot of athletes come back after their off season and and they want to drop a bit of weight. And um, you know, it can be challenging to do um, say calorie counting or you know reductions in portion size. You know, these are things that athletes don't like to do. So if you can give them a simple advice that's around about um, narrowing the, the length of time for when they eat, while still, of course, you have to adhere to there's all sorts of good practices around getting the, the right uh, balance of nutrients and so on, and adequate protein for recovery and timing of fuel around exercise and so on, that all has to be incorporated as well. But um, using time-restricted eating in that, in that type of pre-season window, I think, is is probably going to be the best um, return on investment, you know, without yeah. impacting on performance. And as you know yourself, probably from your old uh, GA days and your continuing work with um, teams and elite athletes, um, yeah. pre-season training um, can often be uh, tough enough um, with yeah. people coming back and not not the greatest of shape. And it's probably the thing that most people, team team players, are otherwise dread. So um, yeah. adding another, adding something else onto them, do you think that, you know that they'd embrace it? Um, you know, if they were to ask to go into a kind of a time-restricted eating mode as well. Well, look, you, you always, across a group of, let's say, you know, in team sport where I'm dealing with 30 players, uh, you always get a kind of a mix of people who are really enthusiastic about things like this and others who aren't so enthusiastic. So it's uh, it's always a delicate uh, balancing act trying to find what works uh, for everyone. But, um, you know, what, one of the things we did in the study um, was that we had them fill out questionnaires at the end of, of the study in terms of, you know, 
do they find it easy to do? What were the benefits? Did they perceive them to be? Um, would they do it again? And so on. And by and large, the feedback was relatively positive. A lot of them spoke about the fact that it, it simplified their day in terms of when they were eating and, uh, and what they were eating and it gave structure that they didn't previously have and so on. So again, some people might have all of these things in place already and not really find any benefit to uh, this type of approach, whereas others, it might be you know a new way of looking at an approach to um, to their diet. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's the direction things are going. It might, yeah, it might just, even if you said, even if it just introduced better eating habits, it's probably yeah. very beneficial anyway. Yeah. Um, you, you know, there's, I mean, you, you know, probably way better than I would. There's, there's a huge amount of attention constantly in the media um, and online and social media and everywhere about kind of weight management and health yeah. so you've got operation transformation on the telly and the leaders there and their, their particular journeys we've got the uh, the season of Lent upon us as well where a lot of people have been <laughs> traditionally giving up stuff and you've got yeah. everything that's going on on the internet I only had somebody um, you know uh, that I know asking me the other day about um, thinking of going on a water only fast and I was saying oh, no, I don't know about that um, you know there, there, there's probably lots of dangerous kind of advice out there but you as with you, you would stick to um, things that are kind of scientifically proven and, uh, and measurable and safe. For sure, yeah. I mean, th- that's the thing about uh, the nutrition world at the moment is everything you described there is spot on. I mean, there's so much information out there for people to uh, to try and work with and get their head around. And, you know, there's a lot of good information and there's, there's a lot of bad information as well. And um, I, I know that, again, speaking to people and, you know, my own family members and teammates and so on, it can be very hard to figure out what is uh, you know so true and effective and, and, and what's not and um, like you say our our whole principle you know as practitioners is working around what we call evidence-based uh, practice which is you know stuff that's been tested and validated by scientists and, and other practitioners and so um, you know fasting is one of those things that's become very trendy um, and you know you mentioned the water only fast and and another example of, of intermittent fasting is what's called alternate day fasting, where it's one day of eating, one day of fasting, one day of eating, one day of fasting, and so on. So there's all kinds of regimes, but you know the, the thing I often say is that people should be careful about undertaking these types of, of extreme regimens um, without supervision and without consulting a, a practitioner, because um, these are very, you know, maybe less so in the case of 16-8, uh, but any of these type of fasting regimens or, or major dietary restrictions um, you know, they're a big shift to someone's habits and to their metabolism, and so I don't think they should be taken um, uh, lightly in terms of uh, in terms of following them, and should definitely be done under supervision, consultation with a GP or dietitian, uh, or yeah. so on before before undertaking them. Yeah, I must say I was quite frightened when it was when the, the water fast only thing I was was mentioned to me. I hadn't heard of that before when I when I thought about it. No, I, I wouldn't go anywhere near it because it's it's um, you know when you hear of the the kind of um, health impacts that even going back to our own um, history and uh, hunger strikes and all of that and you yeah. the impacts on the body. I, I wouldn't go within a water fast personally with a barge pole. Um, what's what sort of um, research then? Further research have you got planned in the whole kind of diet, nutrition, exercise space, Brendan? Is anything more interesting coming up? Yeah, well, we, um, we're always active with, um, with older adults, as you mentioned uh, in your introduction there. So um, we've, over the last number of years, had a, quite a bit of work done on um, looking at exercise alone and then exercise combined with dietary intervention um, for effect on, on muscle health um, in older adults. And so um, a lot of our work at the moment is, is looking at um, the effect of increasing protein intake in, in older adults. So, you know, it's been documented by our work and by others that 
generally speaking, as we get older, we tend to eat um, less protein. Yet protein is, you know, the build, a really important building block for muscle and maintaining muscle health. And so, um, we've been looking at different pieces of work about whether it needs to be supplemental forms of protein, whether it can be achieved with real foods, uh, how that interacts with exercise, without exercise, and you know, by and large, um, it's probably messages people know already, which is that you know a little bit of exercise is better than nothing at all. Um, probably does need to be a bit of strength training in there um, in order to uh, maintain mm. muscle health as we get older. And, um, you know, we don't have to have really high protein intakes, but certainly uh, having a little bit higher protein um, can benefit people as, as they get older as well. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, most of that research is, is on its way out. Great. Okay, we'll, have to, we'll have to get you back to talk about that in more detail because I yeah, think okay. um, both myself and our, our listeners would be sure, except that we've probably got a lot more um, people in the older listeners' um, age brackets. Oh, okay. okay. Spaces than our cohorts or groups than we do in the elite athlete, athlete groups. Right. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, the, uh, it's fascinating research that yourself and your colleagues seem to be doing up there, Brendan. Um, we, we better leave it at that. Thanks a million for joining us. It's been great talking Thanks to you. Thanks very much, Mark. Thank you. You're very welcome. Cheers. And that was Professor Brendan Egan, who is an associate professor in DCU in the School of Health and Human Performance there, uh, specializing in sport and exercise physiology. So whatever about uh, the impact of 16-8 diets and restricted time eating on elite elite long-distance athletes, uh, I think we'd probably, as I say, we would, we'd have a great conversation with Brendan about uh, older adults and exercise and diet and exercise there, as he was mentioning at the end. We'll get him back sometime for that. Anyway, we better move on with the show. We'll take our first ad break of the show today, and we'll be back with you in a couple of minutes' time, just after these. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Well, welcome back to the show. I wouldn't normally be doing uh, weather on a Tuesday afternoon because uh, we'd get a bit confused about uh, about uh, where the weather was going if we were listening on a Wednesday morning. But uh, my apologies there for slipping in that sting um, when I when I shouldn't have been doing that. No problem. Uh, we will, of course, uh, do the weather on the Friday when yeah, we don't have to be confused about the repeat on the Saturday morning because there isn't one. Anyway, let's move swiftly on before I tangle myself up in knots. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Tony Lawhoff, a senior engineer with Kilkenny County Council. Uh, great to have you with us, Tony. How are you? Hi, Morris. I'm good. And you? Great, great thanks. Now, I believe earlier on today, uh, Tony, um, the council um, issued a press release welcoming the decision of onboard Planola to grant planning permission for the development of the urban park and street in the Abbey Quarter site. Um, that's a great day, really, for the development of the Abbey Quarter, a big milestone. Yeah, it's a very significant decision for the for, for the overall Abbey Quarter development, uh, Morris, and it, it will facilitate us uh, in terms of the commencement of phase two of the Abbey Quarter development. One of the key, as well, one of the key requirements in terms of the our key challenges for the development of the Abbey Quarter is the integration of the the former brewery site into the into the city and into the streetscape of the city. So this this project will very much allow us to to really start to integrate the site back out into the city. So the site has been cut off for the last. 300 years while the brewery was in, in existence so this, this this will really allow the public to take ownership yeah. of the of the site yeah so before we get into kind of the details of uh, what the, the development will consist of just to remind listeners and probably quite a lot of them are fairly familiar with it anyway um just what what can you tell us about having got to this milestone about the kind of the development time scale from here on in Development timescale in terms of the the street and park. What we've been looking yeah, at is yeah, that we getting, getting it actually like well, like, you know, my initial thought was, oh, I'm really looking forward to the day when I'm I able to walk or cycle down the new street. So when might that be? 
Yeah, we, we would expect that we should be out to tender for the project by the end of this year, uh, with com- with construction commencing then in early early 2022, uh, and then that 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 would so you would be looking at the project being completed in 2023. But I would have to give a large caveat to that, Morris, is that the, the, it is still subject to funding being being allocated to the to, to the project. We have made a very significant application under the Urban Regeneration and Development Fund for funding for the project, and we expect a funding announcement uh, in in. In the coming weeks, uh, our funding decision. Yeah, but I presume you'll be ploughing on ahead with um, the detailed design and the planning, and uh, as you say, pre- preparing the tender documents anyway. In the meantime, exactly. So that exactly. Yeah. So, that, so that we're ready to go once 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 the funding is is, is yeah. confirmed. Yeah, so the, the new street anyway, Tony, just to remind listeners that, that may not be too familiar with what's happening with it, it's going um, one way, I think it's described, from the tea houses on Bateman Quay all the way down as far as the St. Francis bridge and um, the road connecting the bridge into Irish Town. In fact, I think you can already see where that where the new street will join up with that um, road coming out of the St. Francis Bridge already on the ground and it'll incorporate the public park around um, St. Francis Abbey. That's the, broadly speaking, the that's, that, that, that's broadly that's broadly the the, the route of us, uh, Morris. Uh, what 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 I'd stress is that the the street is is intended that it will be a pedestrian and cyclist dominated uh, space with local with with limited uh, access for vehicles who who need to access the the, the Abbey Quarter sites itself. So what I say to your listeners is that the you won't have a scenario where somebody will come out of the uh, of the market cross uh, outside the market yards car park and decide that they'll take it a shortcut up to up to St Francis Bridge. That won't oh. that will not be facilitated by the development. Um, very much yeah, vehicle access yeah. will be limited to access to the to the directly into the Abbey Quarter, yeah. not for through not not for through traffic. Because it was um, that that even just those couple of words mentioning one way um, from the tea, from Bateman Quay down to the St Francis Bridge caught my eye on on the press release. Um, it, it, it would seem like when so you're saying that whenever traffic would be allowed on it or for or for whatever traffic would be allowed on it, it would be going in that direction. That obviously wouldn't apply to pedestrians or cyclists, but um, I presume. But um, you know, would, would it, is it not more accessible in the sense coming for vehicles do have to get into it? Is it not more a bit more accessible coming in off the St Francis Bridge rather than down Bateman Quay because the you know the turn onto Bateman Quay is a very tight one. I think I think the, the difficulty what what we did didn't want to have is uh, traffic coming our cars coming through our vehicles coming through the site and finding finding that they were caught up into into heavy traffic down in the Bateman Key area. The intention was that you you should be within the city centre and trying to get out, uh, having a free free exit rather than a free entry into the in, in, into the area. Uh, from from a travel yeah. perspective, yeah. yeah, and I suppose it's uh, good to highlight again that it's just uh, the whole the street and indeed the, the public park around St Francis Abbey is envisaged primarily for pedestrian and cyclist use. Very, very, very much so. I, th- I think, I think, in terms of the street, I think a good, a good precedent uh, street for for your listeners to to consider is the likes of Kieran Street here in the city, uh, or or maybe the likes of Grafton Street in Dublin on a, on, a, on a bigger scale. That's the that's the general design the design concept. So limited vehicle access, dominated by pedestrians and cyclists, and we would see that the buildings that the buildings that are developed along uh, that would be facilitated are that be accessible from the street that they should be allowed to spill out onto the street so what you might have is you might have tables and seating associated with those with those buildings out on out on the street very much the idea is that if a vehicle is traveling through that area they should feel uncomfortable the the, the, the driver should be questioning should should i re- should i really be here you know so it's, mm. it's really to it's very much the, the whole the whole design 
underlying concept is pedestrian yeah. and cyclists have, have priority. I suppose like, um, like, uh, like Kieran Street and indeed Grafton Street, they can be um, blocked off um, with, with bollards, I presume, with even removable Thanks. bollards for, for kind of um, the non well, the hours whenever whenever it is, the vehicles aren't permitted to be there. Exactly. So, so we will, we will, we will, the, the, the design will incorporate bollards at, e- at either end uh, of the, yeah. the street, which will yeah. control vehicle access. Exactly. Yeah, and Tony, the the, um, the St Francis Abbey structure itself, you know, it's been sitting there pretty much un- untouched, I suppose, for a long, long time now. Since um, the brewery has been in operation around it, um, w- will it will it have to have any more any kind of protection or restoration work done on it to make it? safe to have kind of the pe- people wandering around it and, and it being in the middle of the park? Uh, there's co- a couple of interesting things about Morris. I suppose they d- just outlined that the the uh, abbey itself is excluded from the from the planning uh, permission for for the for the park. So the the, uh, the abbey itself is in the care of the Office of Public Works. It is it is in good condition at the at the moment. Uh, but we we are working presently with the OPW and the National Monument Service in the preparation of a conservation plan for for the heritage structures within that are located within the park. So so you have the not only the abbey but also the city walls incorporating Evans Turret and also St Francis as well. So we will prepare preparing a conservation plan. But I think it's important. St Francis Abbey is a national monument, and, and once, the, once the brewery was in operation, there was no public access to to the abbey. So the development of the park will will, will provide access to the abbey. I, I don't know if you're familiar. We did an open day back in 2017. Yes, I was there. Actually, it was over, it's great to have. Yeah, yeah. we had over over 2,000 people visited the site, and the number of people would have commented that that in their lifetimes they never had access into in, into see St Francis Abbey. You know, so I think the, the, the abbey is very much going to be at the heart of the of, of the abbey quarter of the whole abbey quarter development. Uh, so I think it's important to note as well that the the public consultations that were under took place back in 2015 had a, had had a very significant impact on the on the, the the design of the park and the idea that there's a park going in there. It, it, the, the original master plan for the Abbey Quarter had indicated some new buildings being constructed up in the area to the north of the of St Francis Abbey, but as a result of those public consultations, those 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 buildings have now been uh, omitted from the from the master plan, and we're looking at now a two and a half acre park around around the Abbey. We very much see that whole space around the Abbey as being a very uh, lively and animated space and it has been designed in, in such a way that it will accommodate outdoor events. So we would see that the likes of uh, the many festivals that happen to, in, the, in the city during, throughout the year, that they would hold events down in that, in that space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to say, I know it's probably completely out of the, the scope of this conversation, Tony, but I've often been fascinated by it. Um, at least I think there's one of them left, one of the big um, silos from the old brewery days and I thought of that as a kind of a possibility you could if it could be converted into a big opening up stage or something like that it would be an amazing um, link with uh, with the yeah, old use of the the site and continuity for when it be used for public entertainment. Yeah, we're looking. We're looking at options for how how those how those uh, vats might be might might be incorporated into the overall development, and, and, and we have had had some discussions with the with the architectural students at Waterford IT and Carlow IT to come up with some innovative and imaginative ideas for how how they may be incorporated into the into the into the overall space, and the likes of the the idea that as you present is of some kind of an out uh, stage for that is is one 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 such option that uh, that, that may be considered. Yeah, and um, the, the one thing as well that I've 
when I was in there for the open day, and I think it's very easily seen if you're up on or any vantage point around the centre of the city when you can see now into the brewery site, there's there's a massive amount of as was kind of concrete apron all, apron all around the site now. Um, I presume, or, or what, what's going to happen to a lot of that? Is it going to have to be all removed? And and do, is, is there any sense of uh, at the moment, or what's known about you know what's what may lie underneath that? Yeah, so we, 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 we've undertaken extensive archaeological test excavations throughout the throughout the overall site, um, or so we've we've a very good idea from an archaeological perspective what what what's what's below the below the concrete slab. But in the main the intention here is that the is that the concrete slab would be retained in situ and that we will build both the street and the park on top of the on top of the, the concrete slab. So but we're we're where the in, in localized areas, we may puncture the, the the concrete slab to allow for tree for tree trees to be planted and the likes. But in general, we will be building up on top of the concrete slab. All right. And, and what was there anything interesting discovered then? Because you know you you know better than I do. Like you only have to scratch the surface really around Kilkenny City and you'll find something of that's fascinating from an archaeological point of view. Was there anything really interesting in there that was found in the investigations? I, I, th- I think what was interesting, Morris, is that we, we have extensive cartographic and other records of the site, and what, what was interesting was to find that the, the targeted test excavations that we undertook confirmed a lot of the that a lot of the mapping and cartographic records of the site are, are, are very accurate. So where we went in, so the, the excavations are always very targeted, uh, that you're, you go in there looking for something. So in the cases where we looked for, for the remains of, of old buildings or that, we did find those foundations and, and, and walls where, where close, close to where we expected them to be. Mm. We did find quite, quite extensive uh, burials in the area to the, to the north and to the west of the abbey. So, so that whole area, there was a, it would have been used as, as, as a graveyard. And that's reflected in the, in the design of the, of the park where we will have grassed areas and, and that uh, and, and some planting that, that 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 will reflect the fact that there there are burials associated with the yeah uh, and is and is there any potential then for doing that kind of you know you know the uh, the kind of work that was that's been done I think it's suspended at the moment in um, the grounds of the castle where they've kind of dug up the uh, the foundations of the old gatehouse is there any potential for doing something like that and, and one or two spots around then um, the, the the park around St Francis Abbey or the general site. Typically, typically, what we're going to do, Morris, is where where we know that the footprint of the of buildings existed previously is that we are going to reflect that in the in the finished surface. So we may we may mark the, the location of walls or buildings by a change in the paving. Some of your listeners will be familiar with in in uh, at Argetown Bridge and up on Ormond Road, where you have the city walls marked yeah, by a change is, in the yeah. paving. So so it's more it's more that approach that will be it will be adopted. A lot of the below grounds remain. They're not in great condition uh, and once you start to open up a hole hole like that in the ground there's issues of protection and protecting people from falling and falling into the into the space of that so it's more to try to reflect the archaeology in the finished finished surfaces uh, yeah, yeah. Is, is the approach that we're taking so yeah so the, the, with, with the time scale that you were talking about earlier on um, even though you know it's a you know a year or two out yet before the year a couple of years out yet before there'll be anybody walking along that new street and I think there's a huge amount of people will be looking forward to that um, it'll be well finished before there may be a lot of the buildings built you know there'd be a big space then between the new street kind of heading you know over towards the river and the, the space that's being finished at the moment for the new riverside walk um you know in the in the in the time while 
you know, there's um, no building on that, that those particular patches of land. Um, will it be all kind of blocked off by hoarding, or how will it be? How, how will it look or feel? Because as I say, the street would be well there before the buildings are all um, built on, yeah, well, in, in the space. What I would say, what I would say, Morris, is the, is, is the fact that that planning consent has been has been approved by by the board gives gives Kilkenny Abbey Quarter Development Limited the opportunity now to to progress with the design of the of the, those new buildings that you refer to, and certainly the the, 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 the Kilkenny Abbey Quarter intends to appoint a design team in the coming in the, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, to start work on the on the first of the of, of the new buildings, so the, the, but there will you're right there will be periods of time before there will be a period of time after the completion of the street before before some of those new buildings will will be finished. So they will be presented by by way of uh, of hoardings hoardings around the site. But typically, where where we've done that previously, you, most people will be familiar with the with the boundaries of the of the along the approaches to St Francis Bridge. It it it, it can be done in in, in quite a well presented manner. Mm-hmm. Grand. And just before we let you go, then Tony, thanks again for joining us. Uh, a great, great day for the uh, Abbey Quarter and its uh, overall development. Um, the, the, that that um, riverside uh, walk that I, I mentioned a little bit delayed because of COVID. I presume the same applies for the skate park um, and is, is it those other developments that are going on. What's the latest update on projected completion for them? I'd, I'd I'd love to know the answer to it, Morris. What, right. what I what, what I can say, to, what I what I can say to you is that once once the current COVID uh, restrictions on construction works are lifted, we would expect that there's there's in the order of four to five weeks work on site before before we can get the get get that project open. We'd really love to get get that get get that project open to the public, and and allow allow people to to start getting getting onto the site. Uh, and certainly, look, the skate park is there, and people there's, an, there's a huge amount of interest in the in the in the skate park, uh, and we really want to get to get that project open as soon as we can. But it is very much dependent on the lifting of the current COVID restrictions. Yeah, of course, nothing we can do about that except all behave ourselves and observe the restrictions and shorten the timescale for getting um, society in general, including construction, opened up again, which we all like to see happen. Look, it's been lovely talking to you, Tony. Great to have you on the show, and uh, no doubt there'll be more updates on um, any of the on all of the projects in the uh, the. Old Abbey Quarter site as, as the year goes on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Morris. Good evening. You're very welcome. There you go. That was uh, Tony Lahoff, the senior engineer with um, Kilkenny County Council. Great to have um, Tony on the show and a big day, as I say, getting the uh, planning approval from on board Planola for the development of the urban park and the street in the Abbey Quarter site in the middle of the city here in Kilkenny. Anyway, we'll uh, move on with the show after the next break. We'll be joined by Rosemary Timmons, who is the national fundraising leader with the Irish Cancer Society, and we'll be chatting about uh, Daffodil Day 2021. So do stay with us, and we'll be back with you in a couple of minutes' time, just after these. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. A throw from Beatty. Maguire! Oh, he's done it! Join me, Jim Cashin, every Tuesday evening from 6 to 7pm with an in-depth look at local, national, international and cross-channel soccer with our programme Offside. We will have lively debate and analysis with Burr Scott and many special guests from the world of soccer. So that's Offside every Tuesday night, sponsored by Morrissey Motors for Peugeot on the Washford Road. And Sean Maguire is the hero of the day and the hero Kilkenny Today is sponsored by Walsh's Toyota Kilkenny. Toyota, built for a better world. Welcome back to the last part of today's Kilkenny Today. Morris O'Connor with you as per usual on the Tuesday afternoon and indeed on the repeat on the Wednesday morning. So good morning to you if you're listening 
on the repeat to us uh, either on FM, 88.7 FM, or indeed on the internet, crkc.ie, whichever way you're, we're, you're connected to us. We're delighted to have you connected to us as well, and do stay listening. Now, I'm uh, very pleased to be joined on the line by Rosemary Simmons, who's National Fundraising Leader for the Irish Cancer Society. Good afternoon, Rosemary. How are you, Morris? Good evening. Good evening or good afternoon, whichever you prefer. Anyway, I'm fine, thanks. Um, Rosemary, uh, I suppose it's probably fair to say that uh, Daffodil Day, uh, run by the Irish Cancer Society, is probably one of the, the best-known uh, national uh, charity fundraising events and certainly has been in previous years. Um, obviously, the, it, its timing was very unfortunately coinciding really with the, the first big shutdown uh, last year spring last March and uh, here we are again. Not Maybe we never thought we would be but we are where we are as they say and we're back. Uh, just going back to last year just for a second, um, was it cancelled altogether or did it? Did you manage to transform it into an online event and how did it work out? Well, Morris, you're, you're right. It's, it's a bit of deja vu here. Here we go again where we're having to, to relook at how we do our traditional Daffodil Day that as you rightly say has been around for many years now, over 30 years indeed. Um, last year we had to pull the traditional daffodil day that we know and love um, just maybe a couple of weeks before we would normally go out on the streets with our with our community doing all of our various on-street collections and fundraising events and um, we really felt that there, you know it, it wasn't the time to be going out and asking people at that moment in time to get behind a daffodil day but very, very quickly it became very apparent that people really did want to step forward and support the Irish Cancer Society. So we had a version of it. We had sort of a, a digital online version, nothing like the normal one that we get to do, uh, but we turned around very quickly and, uh, as I said, the appetite was there amongst the community, um, which it is year on year, Morris, you know, to come yeah. and step forward and, and, and fundraise for the Irish Cancer Society. But it obviously was a blow and, you know, it did impact the fundraising uh, that we would normally get in terms of the results. And indeed, look, like many of our charity colleagues in the sector, um, you know, throughout the year, fundraising has been impacted because so many of the events we normally do throughout the year have had to be cancelled. Yeah, well, of course, you're in the same boat as you know, pretty much every other charity in the country, but then that's not an awful lot of consolation. Um, how long has Daffodil Day actually been happening for? How many years? Well, it's, it's over 34th year now, would you believe, Morris? Yeah, and, um, you know, we're Whoa. looking forward to still doing a version of Daffodil Day. Um, we're going to run it again this year, kindly supported by our colleagues in Boots. We have set aside Friday the 26th of March to mark it again this year. But throughout the month of March, there'll be lots of different ways that people can get involved, not just on the day itself. And we're looking forward to celebrating it with the community, um, you know, in, in a big way this year. And in many ways, it is our most important Daffodil Day this year um, and we try to uh, continue to provide the support that we do for all of our cancer patient community. Yeah, so March 26th is D-Day, I suppose. Um, and hopefully the, the weather will oblige, because certainly here in my own garden in Kilkenny, um, the daffodils themselves, uh, the real ones, seem to be a little bit later than they have been in previous years. So maybe having uh, the, the daffodil on the 26th of March, there'll be a lot more real daffodils around to, to remind people of the day by the time it comes around. I don't know how things, how they are up where you are. They're peeping through. I could see them at the weekend. They've been peeping through the storms and, and, and the, the ice and frost that we've had here in Dublin for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and we are lucky that we have the lovely emblem of, of Daffodil as part of our, our flagship um, event. And yes, you know, um, we will be still selling daffodils uh, in different ways this year, not necessarily fresh ones on street corners that you might see in the past, 
But if people visit cancer.ie, they'll see ways of donating for Daffodil Day. They can still buy their daffodil pins or indeed visit our Daffodil Day shop that has a host of lovely merchandise for, to celebrate Daffodil Day as well. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned there going on to cancer.ie and uh, donating. Of course, yeah, there's plenty of, I can see that from the website. It's very clearly easily able to, to, to people can do that. Um, there is always, this, as you probably know, there's a lot of mention of the digital divide, maybe talked more about in, in the context of um, students at the moment trying to learn from home. But um, there's a large number of people that uh, maybe aren't too tech savvy. Is there a way that they can participate in Daffodil Day and help you out and donate or get involved in some way? Well, absolutely. As I said, with cancer.ie, there'll be lots of ways of, of getting involved there in terms of information. Um, you know, you can still purchase a pin. Uh, our colleagues in Booth will still be supporting us for you can do donations at the till as well. Um, we're inviting people to turn the town yellow, still have a, a, an opportunity to celebrate what is the great community spirit that goes behind Daffodil Day normally. And, you know, still do a little bit of innovative fundraising uh, in your own way, obviously in keeping with all the, the uh, public health guidelines and restrictions. Um, but yeah. we're doing things again this year, like we have a, a step challenge running for the month of March. Uh, we're going to have a virtual donation online, and that's a really easy way of getting involved as well. Or as I said, simply buying the pin and simply buying the merchandise online. It's, it's, it's all still available this year. Yeah, so I suppose that's the message. Anyway, the message for people who um, aren't good at getting online is um, you can always drop into Boots and uh, exactly. donate in there anyway. Exactly. Other ways. Probably other retail outlets as well that are still open will have the pins that's available, exactly. which would be great. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's not as many as, as we like, uh, as we normally have, obviously, with so many of the retail as they closed at the moment. But for those that are, um, that still continue to support us, they will, they will still see it in some of those outlets. Yeah, yeah. It's been a very difficult year, of course, for, not not just for the general pop population uh, because of COVID-19, but it's even, probably even more so for um, people living with cancer and um, trying to uh, you know, plot their way through and stay healthy and well and away from infection and everything else. Um, I'm sure you, you're hearing lots of stories back from, um, from the people and your friends at the Irish Cancer Society about how they've been trying to manage over the year. Absolutely, Morris. And like the, the coronavirus pandemic has impacted on everyone. But as you rightly say, it's been a particularly difficult year for cancer patients and indeed their families. Uh, you know, cancer screenings were paused, treatment plans were interrupted and, you know, social distancing, you know, meant that a lot of people had to deal with some difficult, um, you know, meetings with consultants and difficult hospital visits on their own. And so, you know, throughout the year, throughout the pandemic, and we continue to provide vital services and support, we have a free support line there for anybody that's affected by cancer. That's 1-800-200-700. And we have remote counselling available, again, for anybody affected by cancer, be it a cancer patient going through a treatment journey themselves or indeed uh, a family member who might, who might need some support or who might need like, to talk to one of our nurses as well uh, to, to help uh, care for their loved ones. Um, so we, we can only supply those services, obviously, by people getting behind us uh, all year round, but particularly uh, on, on Daffodil Day and throughout the month of March. Yeah, and just what, just before we leave the subject of the, the pandemic, there has been some announcement recently. I think around a reprioritisation of the, the the vaccination priority lists to um, bumps um, people with chronic illnesses um, yeah. up the, the priority list. Uh, has, is that in positively having an impact on people um, trying to live with cancer? Yes, I mean, obviously, you know, there's, there's additional anxieties and concerns for people living with cancer. So anything that we could get would, which would support people um, to be getting that assurance of vaccines coming down the track sooner rather than later, uh, that can only be good news for all of us.
There's, there's also, of course, uh, I suppose, cancer being what it is, and so many people living with so many different forms of cancer. Rosemary, there's, yeah. there's, there are always people um, being featured in the media. We just had uh, um, our own Kilkenny resident, um, very well known, Vicky Phelan, um, was currently yeah. in the USA. She was featured in the Irish Times today. There is also the sad death of um, Dr. Tony Hanrahan's um, wife, uh, Dr. Emer Feely, there the other day. Yeah. And, the sad death also of Joan Lucy, a lady in her early 70s, and then um, a much younger um, woman, Lindsay Bennett, featuring on The Late Late Show um, recently about her own particular journey. Yeah. Um, what, what kind of impact do all of these kind of in, in interviews and, and personal stories have on the kind of contacts that you get within the Irish Cancer Society, whether it's through um, you know donations or just requests for help and support? Well, I mean, you know, what you're indicating there, even Morris, is how many people have been touched by cancer and how many different stories there are and how many different experiences there are. And, you know, within the Kilkenny region alone, about 600 people would re receive a cancer diagnosis in any one year. Um, people like Vicky or other people that you've mentioned there coming forward and telling their stories um, makes it a little bit more relatable for people who are going through their journeys and makes you know, helps helps us tell the story of, you know, the the cancer story for those who are going through it, and helps us create awareness of the issues that are facing cancer patients at various stages, and as you say, varying different diagnoses as well. And um, so, once again, anybody who's affected by cancer, they can go to cancer.ie or phone one eight hundred two hundred seven hundred for any support that we can give them. And indeed, there's um, just looking at the the page, your page specific to. Uh, this year's Daffodil Day. Plenty of information on that and featuring, of course, the, the, the bright yellow and orange daffodil colour all over yeah. the place. Plenty of uh, different ways that you can encourage people to get behind the, this year's campaign, even if it has to be a bit more virtual than in previous years. Yeah, we mightn't see you out on the streets, but it is our most important Daffodil Day ever. It's year two that we have to do it differently and we'd love your support. Yeah, great. Look, it's been a great talking to you, uh, Rosemary. Lovely to, to have you with us here on the show today. So just a reminder for listeners, the actual day itself is March the 26th, and you can find out more by going on to cancer.ie or indeed for any support you may need from the Cancer Society, uh, 1-800-200-700. All right? That's it. Thanks, Morris. Not at all, Rosemary. Thanks for joining us. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much. Um, that was Rosary Timmons, who's uh, the National Fundraising Leader with um, Irish Cancer Society, just talking about uh, this year's Daffodil Day. And of course, um, you know, given that it's been an uh, event that's been happening for the last uh, 34 years, or this is the 34th year, so I suppose 33 years, uh, very, very well known in the community. Lots and lots of people support it. We like, would have done anyway in years gone by by going into workplaces or uh, selling real or artificial daffodils out on the street or in various retail outlets. But as Rosemary mentioned there, um, you can go online to cancer.ie, donate there. You can uh, ring up 1-800-200-700. They'd probably take a donation fee that way as well. Or indeed, as Rosemary mentioned, uh, just pop into Boots shops who um, are open. I presume they would be regarded as an essential service. Anyway, I'm sure Boots are open, uh, as are all other pharmacists. But Boots, anyway, are obviously a main supporter and sponsor of uh, this year's um, Daffodil Day. So you can go in there and um, donate or indeed maybe buy um, the pins and uh, do your bit anyway for the Irish Cancer Society. And uh, so many people, as uh, Rosemary said, touched by cancer in around uh, Kilkenny City, County and indeed the whole country. And um, 
it's great to see that the, the progress is constantly being made in research and treatments and all the rest and the stories that are highlighted of the likes of Vicky Feeling and the kind of treatments that can be availed of. And indeed, John Holmes here closer to us in Kilkenny City uh, with uh, the Johnny's Pembroke campaign from the last couple of years does show that um, treatments and research are constantly being evolved and uh, it's uh, great, great to see that. Anyway, that's all we've time for on today's Kilkenny Today. Lovely to have had you with us. Thanks again to Rosemary for joining us, Rosemary Timmons from the Irish Cancer Society, to Tony Lahoff, the Senior Engineer in Kilkenny County Council, talking about the Abbey Quarter Development uh, Planning Permission there. And kicking off today's show earlier on was Professor Brendan Egan from the School of Exercise and Sport um, Physiology in DCU and uh, talking about uh, the research they were doing. So it's great to have had you with us. I look forward to being back again on Friday. Thanks indeed to both Mick Cummins and Declan Gibbon for helping me drive the desk today and for and to Anne Nolan for helping me produce. Look forward to being back with you on Friday. Take care. Until then, see ya. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM.